The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Glory, Glory to, to you, you Lord Christ. Christ. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. The gospel of the Lord. Praise be to you, Lord Christ. morning. Let's begin praying together. Father, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. We need help seeing, so I pray, give us eyes to see, give us ears that can hear, and do something in our hearts to make us care more and better that we would want to follow you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a happy Mother's Day to all who are here celebrating with us and worshiping with us. Uh, We're honored to have you here. It's a good place to be on Mother's Day. Um, I thought Josh's prayer was especially appropriate. For for some, this this day is a huge day of celebration. You have an imperfect but good mom that you're celebrating today. By the way, mothers, that is what you're all aiming for. You cannot be perfect Tell that to yourself three times today, but you're good enough, and we love you for it. So some of you are going to celebrate a mom like that, but I'm well aware that's not the case for everyone, that for some, this is a day that's tinged or even drowned with sorrow, maybe because of infertility, wanting to be a mother. And you can't. It could be that you have a mother that's not really worth celebrating too much. There's a brokenness in that relationship. There's a vacancy that's been created. Or it could be that you had an excellent mother and she's gone. And so days like this, they feel that way, don't they? We like to call these kinds of days holidays. And they're tinged with celebration, but they're also filled with sorrow sometimes. And what's really true of all these things is true in my family, too. All these things exist in my family. And it makes days like this bittersweet. But what it shows us in every circumstance is that there is a remarkable power that's associated with a mother. Um, I don't know if the quote is actually Rudyard Kipling's, but there is a quote that said, God could not be everywhere, so he made mothers. That's heretical. It's absolutely heretical, but it does point out the reality and the fact that there is a power and a significance 
to mom that whether for good or ill, if she is absent, there are consequences. This is, it's actually a pretty regular motif in literature and in film. Uh, To Kill a Mockingbird, Jane Eyre, um, Great Expectations. But you know where it's especially prevalent? It's children's literature and film. Spoiler, Spoiler alert's coming. Dumbo. Removed from his mother at a young age and then is raised by a bunch of circus folk. Right? Bambi. Yikes. A hunter's rifle takes his mom away from him at a rather young age, and he's raised by all of his little forest friends, right? His father's still there, but it's really the forest friends that the story focuses on. You got Nemo. A hungry barracuda takes mom, scene one, and then he's left being raised by an overly anxious, traumatized father, right? Cinderella, let's get in the realm of the princess, right? Her... Mother dies. She's raised by a wicked stepmother who is really rather abusive towards her. And then with wicked stepsisters who humiliate her and, and demean her her entire life. Right? And then my favorite of all these really sad stories is Rapunzel. Rapunzel, we don't really know if anything happened to her mom, but she is kidnapped as a child by a wicked sorceress who pretends to be her mom. And she's locked in a tower and controlled because that sorceress wants to use her, right? It's a fascinating story, yet not so kid-friendly. None of them really kid-friendly, right? It's like all these children's stories are about orphans overcoming their trauma. It's amazing. It's amazing. But what's really inherent in all of the stories I mentioned is that there's few greater influences on the life of a child than a mother. Her, her person, her, her presence, her power, it's, it's too great, it's too significant to be gone, to be missing. And so this feeling, this kind of phenomenon is actually present in our gospel passage today, the one from John's gospel. The disciples learned for the first time that Jesus is leaving. He's going to be gone. And John 14 is the beginning of his final conversation with them, which he begins by announcing that he is leaving. Within days, he's going to be captured and he's going to be crucified. And of course, the disciples are troubled by this news. They had left houses and homes. They had left their own mothers and fathers. They had left their families. Everything that gave them a sense of belonging to follow him. And he had been their teacher, their guide, their friend, their counselor, their greatest help. And now he's leaving. What would they do without him? And as if that wasn't enough, at the end of this conversation, in John 16, Jesus says something that's kind of bewildering. It was at the end of our gospel reading. He says, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. How could the absence of Jesus possibly be an advantage? And yet he says this, for if I don't go away, the helper, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Now, let's be honest for a hot minute. If I told you, whether you are a believer or you are a skeptic, okay, that you could have Jesus just as he was with his disciples, or you could have the Holy Spirit, which would you choose? 
if, if you could be with him in the flesh, if you could walk with him, if you could live alongside him, if you could see him heal the blind man and you could see him walk on water, you could see him raise Lazarus from the dead, you could hear sermons from his mouth instead of coming here and hearing sermons about him from our mouths. Wouldn't you rather be with Jesus? Perhaps that would enliven your faith. Perhaps that would assuage your doubts. How much stronger, more vibrant would your faith be if you could just live with him? And yet Jesus tells us that's not the right answer. He says, it's better that I go. There's a greater gain than even me in the flesh that's coming your way. How could this be? This morning, two reasons from the mouth of Jesus. One, help, and two, home. If you look at the passage, Jesus begins by promising the troubled disciples he's going to ask a favor from God the Father, and it's a cry for help. Okay, now, we don't like to cry for help. We don't like to particularly think of ourselves as helpless, that we're in a state of dependency on something divine, something beyond ourselves. Okay? We, we more so tend to agree with the Marxian train of thought that, that God might just be a sigh for those who need relief or a drug, an opiate for the masses of people who, you know, life just hasn't quite ended up the way that they hoped it would. And so in that sense, since the Enlightenment especially, mankind has kind of operated under this assumption, not that man is the invention of God, but that God is the invention of man. That he needs our help to stay alive. But the opposite assumption actually has been true for the vast majority of the history of mankind. That, that God does not exist as a result of the minds of men, nor is he fed and kept alive by human hands as though he needed anything. I'm reading from our passage in Acts. But he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And therefore, that man should seek his help from God. And friends, this very fact, the reality of our helplessness, that's the first thing to actually finding true life. But we don't want to be helpless. In my experience, uh, many want to learn about religion or even have discourses about the divine, but there's very few people who want to cry out for help. And you miss out on help when you don't cry out for it. These disciples certainly feel helpless. They're well aware, okay? Jesus, their help is leaving. And so Jesus promises to cry out on their behalf. And he asks God the Father to give them, read it, another helper who will be with them forever. Now, I'm not a big grammar nerd. I'm a small grammar nerd. But this adjective, another, is quite important, okay? It can mean a couple of different things. It could mean another of a different kind, or it could mean another of the same kind. Uh, we experience this when we go to an ice cream shop. My family goes, and the first thing we do when we walk in is taste testing. Anybody else guilty of this? You get filled up and you've bought nothing. It's a horrible business idea, but it works out for the Baker family. You go in and you taste something and then say, may I have another? And you don't mean another of the same thing. You want to try a different flavor until all the flavors have been tried. 
right? Inevitably, it's a futile exercise for me because I will always end up at the exact same thing. Cookies and cream. It's the best. It will always be the best. And so my experience in the ice cream shop is actually to ask for another of the same kind. Another scoop and another scoop and another scoop. I want another that is exactly like it. And that's really the use of another that's in view here. Jesus is, he's asking the father to give another helper who is just like him. That everything Jesus had been and done in his ministry to the disciples would now be carried on by the Holy Spirit. We often forget sometimes this thing about Jesus himself and his humanity. He depended on the Spirit. The beginning and end of his life was the Spirit. He was conceived by the Holy Ghost. He was raised from the dead by the power of the Spirit. And in between, they speak of him as someone who was filled with the Spirit. In Jesus' humanity, the Holy Spirit was Jesus' help. And so the Holy Spirit now would continue this kind of work towards them, towards the disciples, that he will be another helper to them, just like he was to Jesus. Can you see why that's advantageous? In, in my humble opinion, one of the primary deficiencies in our circles is how ill-acquainted we are with the Holy Spirit. He is passively acknowledged instead of actively engaged. And in a lot of ways, we don't even give much attention to him. Sometimes he's avoided altogether or even forgotten, so to speak. Uh, I think some of this is due to hysterical abuses in the, in the name of the Holy Spirit. But I also think some of this is just bad theology, that we think of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit as if he's subordinated underneath God the Father and God the Son like the bronze medalist winner of the Holy Trinity. He's doing everyone's bidding. And it's a shame. That also is called heresy, by the way. But actually, I think maybe one of the main reasons is due to fear of man. Potential embarrassment and admitting that you believe in an invisible divine spirit. That you would go to bat all day for Jesus, Jesus in the flesh, the historical Jesus, or for the inerrancy and the inspiration of the scriptures of the very word of God, but you'd rather remain hush about the Holy Spirit because you're afraid of what others might think especially in our present day and age. And I've got to tell you, whatever the reason, it's to our detriment. We will live a helpless life without the helper. We will live perhaps a religious life, but it will feel lifeless without his help. That's why Jesus calls him our great and primary help. So for a moment, who is he and what does he do? Jesus tells us, first of all, in this passage that the Holy Spirit is a person who is with us forever. He's more than a power. He's a person. He's a divine person with personality. We, we might acknowledge this theologically, but we often neglect it in practice in life because as a person, it means the spirit is someone to be known. Paul likes to tell it this way. Walk with him. Walk with him. 
as if he's with you, as if he's right beside you. He's to be related to. And it's the third person of the Godhead, even more than that. He's to be worshiped, adored, enjoyed, venerated, and obeyed. And so it makes sense when the Bible presents the Holy Spirit throughout it, it qualifies him with qualities of personality. He has an intellect, and he has a will, and he exercises both. He interacts with emotion. He's grieved by our sin. And not just our sin, he groans with us because of our pain, because of the way the world just is. It says he groans with all creation. And he sometimes is referred to as the breath or the voice of God, which means he speaks. He intimates, he communicates, he guides, he teaches. The descriptor that's given here by Jesus that the Holy Spirit is, is helper is the word paraclete. Okay, this communicates he's a person and he's highly personal. A paraclete is someone who walks alongside you. Have you ever been helped in that way when life is really hard? That's who the Spirit is. And then Jesus goes on in verse 17 and says something just a little different. That this helper, the spirit, does so according to the truth. That the spirit is a spirit of truth. He's not a spirit of chaos and hysteria. He's a spirit of order and peace. The, the first mention of the spirit in all of scripture is in the second verse of the Bible. And in the primordiality of, of what wasn't yet the earth or the world or creation. I'm not sure primordiality is a word. I like it though. We're going to stick with it. Okay. And the formlessness that existed, the tohu vavohu is, is what it is in Hebrew. That sounds weird. Right? That's what it was like. The spirit hovered over it, and he made order out of the chaos. He made beauty out of it. Maybe that's exactly what he does for us. And then here in verse 17, it doesn't say that he's a spirit of confusion, but he's a spirit of truth. He leads towards the truth, towards reality as God sees it and declares it to be. He makes known to man that which is divine. The, the Bible tells us verbatim that he guided those who wrote down the scriptures themselves. Second Peter 1, no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. It wasn't man's invention. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The very truth we read and preach, the very truth that you hear and try to live, it's all a gift from the Spirit. He's the Spirit of truth. But I will say, the Spirit also sometimes makes the supernatural known in supernatural ways through phenomena, through power. Okay, he's often displayed and depicted as wind or fire or healing or even resurrection. In Ezekiel, we're told that the breath, the spirit, made the dead bones come to life. In our epistolary reading, my favorite verse in the New Testament, Romans 8, 11, it was the spirit of God that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, I'll say this too. Just like we have trouble with helplessness, we also have trouble with the supernatural. Jesus actually predicts this here. Did you see it when we were reading? He said it would be the case that the world will not and cannot receive the Spirit because it doesn't and won't acknowledge Him. It's too far-fetched. The modern mind tends to be science-minded, concerned mainly with the natural order, with biology. 
Well, until it's not. Until sociology eclipses it. And some strange form of humanism starts to say that what's actually really real is whatever you perceive it to be. That you have a self-originating power in you to declare what actually is out there. And these two that are seemingly at odds with each other share something in common. They both do not lend themselves to someone believing in a power beyond themselves declaring what reality is to them. A someone. Either one of these makes us less prone to believe in something supernatural, something beyond our comprehension. And yet it's funny too, we're in the middle of a race to develop artificial intelligence. I'm not going to claim to be an expert on this, but I'm reading about this all the time it seems these days. Anyone else relate to that? I see, I see some ladies laughing. Maybe their husbands are talking too much about it. I don't know. Okay, but there's a growing concern that this artificial intelligence is actually becoming super intelligence. So think iRobot, Asimov. If you don't read, think Will Smith. Okay, that, that artificial intelligence is something experts thought they created and thought they controlled, but they're anxiously realizing it might just be a power capable of controlling them. Have you kept up with artificial intelligence? Because artificial intelligence is keeping up with you. Bad joke. In the articles that I read, kind of like it. Dad joke. (laughs) Um, I receive a weekend reader that helps me sound smarter than I am because it will give you the seven most popular news articles in one fell swoop. All seven in the last, or two weeks ago, all seven were about artificial intelligence. This super intelligence mysteriously developing beyond us. And these are smart people writing these things. They're, they're proposing a six-month hiatus on the development of it. But it's a race to the moon, so no one's going to stop. Right? Here's my point. Maybe we aren't so unfamiliar with the idea that there could be a mysterious power beyond our control. And the depictions of the Spirit communicate this type of reality to us. Like the wind, we don't control him. We don't tell him where to go. And we can't fully explain him either. But we recognize his presence and his power. We know what he is. Okay? Or like fire, the, the power of the Spirit can overwhelm us. Even to the point of bringing something that's dead to life. There's no resurrection, there's no new life without the Spirit. And so we need his presence and power, and we need it in our midst. We need his mysterious and overwhelming help in our very lives, and that's where we'll end this morning. It's this concept of home. Last week, we heard from Tim that one of the great comforts offered to the troubled believer in need of help is this promise, this guarantee of a future help and of a future home. That Jesus tells these troubled followers he's leaving, but he's going to go and prepare a place for them where sin and trouble are no more. And that certainly is a great source of comfort for anyone who is suffering this side of heaven. The idea that they will be with him forever. But what about him being with them right now? Not the help of a future reality, but the help of a present reality. Instead of making a home for them, could he make a home with them? 
And that's exactly what Jesus declares here, what he says the Spirit is going to do. You know, verse 17 and following, you know the Spirit, for he dwells with you, and he will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans, as one without a mother or father, without help. I will come to you. This, this is the supreme advantage. This is why Jesus must go. He he has dwelt with them, but the Spirit's going to dwell in them. And, And just as Jesus is preparing a home for them, that they might dwell with him forever, the Spirit will make them into a home that's a suitable residence for him. The very life of God in you. Everything that Jesus does externally for us to give new life, the Spirit then comes and accomplishes in us. It changes everything from within. It's the promise of the life of God, not just for them, but in them. And that's why I love Romans 8, 11 so much. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. This is the parting gift of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit in you, bringing order to your chaos. Bringing truth and peace to your places of confusion. In every relationship and every part of you that suffers decay or death, offering newness of life, he can resurrect anything that you think is hopeless or dead. He'll make your very heart and life into a home that's worthy of God's resonance. Can you imagine? Have you ever considered your life worthy of divine address? That your heart and life might become his very home. This would change you from the inside out. Outside in is tough. Sermons are outside in. They're good and they're helpful, but we're proclaiming what we believe to be true from God. To you, and we have no idea if it will sink any deeper than your left ear. No idea. But when something comes from the inside out, it always makes its way out. It can't help but do so. And so, if the very Spirit of God dwells in you, new life's going to begin to emerge. The life of God will start to be lived out of you in increasing measure, and the fruit of the Spirit will be something you actually come to know. Increasing love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. We could use that today. Self-control. It's the very life of God coming out of you. And that's the reason our passage is bookended with statements that state that a professed love becomes a demonstrated love. If you love me, you will keep my commands. It can be no other way. When the Spirit makes his home in you, everything's going to start to change. And you might just start to look and live like him. Think Mary Poppins. We'll return where we started. Another children's story. Most of us are familiar with it, I think. The banks advertise they're in need of help because of the unruly children in their home. Can anyone relate? And a nanny comes, Mary Poppins. She knocks on the door. Once she knocks on the door, 
she moves in. Once she moves in, her motherly person is a bit strange. Her methods seem a little bit too strange, right? She's so simple and plain, but she's so complex. She's so orderly, but she's so incredibly imaginative. She enters into the children's chaos, and she brings order and a new way of life out of it. So it is with the Spirit. Will you let him dwell in you? Will you let him make his home in you? I hope you will. In the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Father, we, um, we acknowledge what great gifts you give us. Not only that we might know you, but that our lives might become changed, better, fuller, more vibrant. So Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we give you praise this morning for that fact. And as we come to this table, we're reminded in a physical way of the very real reality that we do indeed feast on you and walk in the Spirit. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.